0: As we'll look at the fifth commandment this morning, just a reminder to parents to always take advantage of that once a month when we observe communion, to take uh, the picture, the gospel dramatize, to bring the gospel to your children, and, uh, and those two elements, the bread and the juice symbolizing the broken body and spilt blood of our Lord Jesus. Also, uh, I think, what's two weeks from tomorrow? Does anyone know? Two weeks from tomorrow. Some might say Halloween, but yeah, let's say (laughs) Reformation Day, okay? And so, we'll two weeks from today, Reformation Sunday. Two weeks from yesterday, our Reformation celebration, But how about a little challenge for all of us to take 15 days, take the five solas of the Reformation, and just plan to kind of think about, read about, look at passages of Scripture that point to those five solas. Let's say, let's see, who knows one of the solas? Who's got a sola? Chris. Chris. Sola Deo Gloria. Yeah, to the glory of God alone. What's another? Sola Gracia. gracia. Yeah, grace alone. Okay, what's another? We got two. What's another, Hannah? Sola Scriptura. scriptura. The Scriptures alone, the Word of God alone. We're three-fifths there. How about fourth? How about a fourth? Okay, Morris. Fide. Fide, faith alone. Clint? Sola Christus. Christ alone, the Scriptures alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Fifteen days, five solas, three days each, and then to end up there right on Reformation Day. What a joy. Well, if you'll open your word to Exodus 20. We come to the fifth commandment, it's a call to honor, is my title. If you don't have a notice on the back of our bulletin, the new design, you've got a little space to take notes, and I appreciate that, new design. And so this morning we return to the book of Exodus and to the ten commandments, and that word is, word, we can say ten words is one way of thinking of it. And up to this point, we've covered the first four commandments, what we may call the first table of the law, where God at Sinai in Acts initiates, if you will, the covenant of grace with his people. And so these first four commandments, which make up that first tablet of the law, prescribe the vertical or Godward dimension Of our obedience, of the duty that God requires of us, of the way we are to live with Him. And I might say even towards Him. Living quorum Deo, before the face of God. And you have the first commandment by way of review. God speaks and says, you shall have no other gods before or besides me. And that's the idea of God and God alone. The God is exclusive, and we're to have no other gods besides or before Him. He brooks, we say, no rivals. The second commandment, right there in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, he says, You're not to make, effectively, bow down, worship, or serve anything that you make with your own hands that replicates something in the created realm. And it points to the spirituality of God as Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then there's the third commandment in this first tablet you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And maybe some of you remember from a few weeks ago, that idea of vain is not when you say, well, I didn't mean anything by it. That's the very point of saying something in vain. It's trite. It's meaningless. It's making sport of God's name. We're not to take his wonderful name in vain, for his name is holy, no doubt. Why the heavenly creatures in Isaiah 6 were calling out to each other as Isaiah in the temple has this vision of God Almighty with the train of his robe filling the temple and would say, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as you would find even in the Trinity hymnal in front of you in the section on the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, that third commandment extends not simply to God's name, but to His title or titles, His character, His attributes, His laws, His ordinances, His works. They're to be honored, they're to be revered, they're not to be trifled with as a plaything or something With which we may banter. And by the way, as an aside, that's why it excites me to hear of those who've enjoyed going to see the Ark and the Creation uh, Museum, the thing up there south of Cincinnati. I know some of you have seen it. But rather than making fun of creation, there's this celebration making great that God, in fact, has first revealed to us as our Creator. But now, then finally, from that first. Tablets, the fourth commandment. We come to that final commandment or command on the first tablet. Remember, we read right there in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we know we were taught from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, as they interpret what's taking place early in Genesis, that on that seventh day of creation, God rested With this holy, joyful, this is all very good satisfaction in all that he had accomplished. Not a rest of exhaustion, but a rest of satisfaction. And it sets a precedent for his creation and for us. But since the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we have this new pattern from the New Testament that we now observe this special day on the first and not the seventh day of the week. And we may call that or call this day today, originally thinking of the Sabbath, maybe then converting to the Christian Sabbath, and now to speak of it kind of in the vernacular as the Lord's Day, as we find in the New Testament. And there is a brief summary of the first tablet of the law. I so appreciate it. I think you might notice this is, Bruce inks artwork for us that in picture form is giving us the first four commandments. Now we come to the second table of the law and to the fifth commandment. And I want you to know we'll continue this. It will be a two-part on the fifth commandment this morning and the next Sunday night as we consider uh, this first commandment of the second uh, tablet of the law. And you see it there. You'll notice that it's brief, but it has something unique to it. Let's just hear as I read it again honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And I may just turn for a moment, you could turn with me to Deuteronomy 5 and see how it's expressed in the re giving of the law in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verse 16. Sounds very similar, but with a little amendment. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So I want you to notice as you compare Exodus 20 verse 12 for a moment with it being retold, re-given in chapter 5 verse 16, that the difference is that there's this phrase, as the Lord your God commanded you, that's also repeated in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5. So there's two commandments that have that special phrase, as the Lord commanded your God commanded you, just as the Lord your God commanded you. But then also, where Exodus 20 verse 12 speaks of that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, there's this extra phrase, that it may go well with you. That's the distinction between Exodus 20 verse 12 and Deuteronomy 5 and verse 16. So I want us to to think briefly then about this passage around six bullet points, and this is why I would help you. I notice, look at that, right? Your father and your mother, and I want us to see, if you're taking notes, here's your big bullet points. I want us to consider the redemptive context of this command or commandment. Secondly, I want us to see the foundation from creation, and that will point us back to Genesis 1. Third, I want us to see the character of the commandment itself, the character of the commandment. Fourth, to see that it has a promise annexed. To it. it has uniquely has a promise attached to it, which is the point of reading Ephesians 6. Fifthly, I want us to see how this has New Testament expression, because you'll notice that the commandment comes to us with honor your father and your mother, but Paul introduces it explicitly with the idea of obedience, which makes you think that as the church at Ephesus or even the church at Colossae was having this parchment red. You can imagine, just like Grace Baptist Church of Taylor's, there were children. There were children to whom obedience or of whom obedience was required to their parents. It was there. And then the sixth thing I want to do is show what making honor easy looks like. Or I might say easier. Easy is not really what I mean to convey, but easier. So number one, the redemptive context. Number two, the foundation from creation. Number three, the character of the commandment. Number four, the promise annexed or attached to the commandment. Number five, the New Testament expression of this commandment. And then lastly, to see how making honor easy. And that's a special word to parents. Now, I think it points out that we all must remember as we come to this commandment that moms and dads, I want to caution you to avoid the temptation to think this is for my kids. Everyone, if you're here, you or someone's child, you have parents. Studies have shown, we like to smile and think about that if your parents did not have children, it's unlikely that you will have children either, okay? So you and I are children. We're simply children of different sizes, okay? So moms and dads, whether you're my age and your parents have gone home to be with the Lord or have died, or whether your parents are still living and they're in their 70s, 80s, 90s, or 100s, or whether you're five years of age or you're eight years of age in here, children of GBC, Pastor Mark is not bringing this message this morning to beat you, to take the Word of God like a bat and beat you with this, okay? This, the Word of God, has application for all of us, for children of all sizes. And it has application for us who have had parents who have been less than righteous examples of parents. And so at the end, and between later and the next week, we'll have a word of encouragement to those who have had difficult, or currently have difficult, absent, aloof, neglectful, or even evil parents. And I've, I've actually interacted with a few of you to think through that a little bit. Because I, we want to acknowledge that last week when Pastor Mark was preaching from Psalm 68, he brought a message that really stirred our hearts. I think for some of us was very encouraging, and for some of us was very saddening as he spoke about the ideal, uh, the, the pre-fall ideal and the post-fall real of the experience of fathers. Well, first then, to this text, let's consider the redemptive context. And the redemptive context is really set for us in chapter 19, and that is where God is preparing to meet with and speak to his people, and he's got this representative Moses, the very friend of God, the one with whom God spoke to. We will find, we'll read many, many months from now from the book of Deuteronomy that God spoke to like, in a sense, friend to friend. But it's here that God. Calls the people to be ready to come up, to prepare themselves to hear a special word from him. And that word, these words that we see, chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, provide the redemptive context, particularly for all these commandments. And here it is. And it's always the same as God deals with us in covenant I'm your God. You're my people. I'm with you. You're with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm all that you need, and I will direct you in the way that you go. And so, when God speaks this prologue, verse 2, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of of the house of slavery. Here, God, even though we've seen Lord in all caps, which is the unspoken Yahweh, which we would, the Hebrews would say Adonai, he says it. God's self identity. I'm not, he doesn't simply say, I'm the Lord God, but he says, I am the Lord your God. I'm your God, and then that will make sense by virtue of the first commandment. But look what he says. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I rescued you. I redeemed you. In that rescue whether it's through the 10 plagues or the crossing through the Red Sea so that the waters after Israel passed through safely would completely annihilate all the horsemen and chariots of Israel. That's the defining event to which we're called to remember and which is a template. It's a paradigm for the Christian life so that when you wake up tomorrow, the same redemptive context for the Ten Commandments is your context for waking up tomorrow with joy and gratitude and hope with a Godward bent and a willingness to live coram de'o. And to remember that it is God who brought you out of your own Egypt of sin, out of your own bondage to sin in all that would condemn you if it were not for the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the redemptive context. So as we here, as we, we have law in front of us, in these two tablets, these ten words that are summarized by the two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second from Leviticus 19.18, and your neighbor as yourself, you have received this word, you've received this command law from the God who is the gospel, who gives you the redemptive context. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Second, I want us to see the creation foundation or the foundation From creation. Hold your finger there as you turn to Genesis 1. So you should be there a bit in Genesis 1 and Exodus 20. So you already know the acknowledgement of children and parentage and family from Exodus 20. It's implicit, it's found. In the second commandment, when it speaks of the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, and it's found there in the promise of steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep me by commandment. And that's through natural generation. God is speaking as he speaks of generations that will reflect a pattern Potentially of sin and the consequences of that. So God does the same with his steadfast love. Then in the fourth commandment, look at this. Implicitly, this word about remembering the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. There's the contemplation that as the sons of Israel are hearing this commandment, that they're caused to think about their families their children. There it is, your son, your daughter, right? Your son or your daughter right there. And obviously, son and daughter, that would mean for the man hearing this, his wife. So there you have the second commandment, the fourth commandment, and then now we come implicit, as we come to the fifth commandment, a reminder that life is lived in this realm of where each of us is someone's child. Every one of us have parents. They may have been good parents. They may have been bad parents. Even you might now think, make, say, this week, I've not really been the best or ideal parent. There's a lot I need to repent of. There's a lot I need to confess. But if you have children, you're a parent. If you're a child. You have parents. And the creation foundation is found, though, in Genesis 1. Look at this for a moment. When God, in chapter 1, verse 27, we read, and it's given almost poetically, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Not one gender, but two. And then immediately, without a, seeing the word marriage, implicitly, though, it's there. Be fruitful. There's the word to the man and the woman, to mankind, if you will, by extension. Be fruitful under this canopy of blessing, Under this distinct sexuality, maleness, femaleness, that in ways that are shrouded a bit in mystery, that reflect being made in the image of God, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so that God glues together as a foundation for this fifth commandment our sexuality with marriage and marriage to procreation. They're not unbound. So that we, from the outset, the original design, and this not guaranteeing that every person is married, that our sexuality is reflected in marriage, not uniquely or only exclusively, but that's connected as a principal design, and then marriage to procreation, and so they're to be thought of in connection. That's the foundation from creation so that there are parents and there are children, and that relationship then is governed principally by this one commandment. Now, let's come to the character of the commandment itself in verse 12. Notice this word, honor, and in fact, even in the title of the message, it's a call to honor. But if you think about it, honor is not unique to this parent-child relationship or children-to-parent. Imagine for a moment, try to recall to your mind some of the passages where you find this theme of honor in the Bible. Some of you may think of it. Maybe you could even shout it out. I'm not afraid if you want to do that. Okay, you can do it. We're to honor the Lord with the first of our what? Wealth. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, God gives this word and he says this. You can look this up. I'm going to give you a couple of references. A quick survey of the pages of the Bible. You'll find this as he's speaking, Right? There's a man of God that comes to Eli the priest whose sons are really misbehaving. And this man says to Eli, he says this. He says, far be it from me for those of God speaking, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly Esteemed. From the book of Proverbs, before honor comes what? Before honor comes humility. Turn to the book of Romans for a moment. Again, what I'm wanting to show here, this idea of honor, that is esteeming, holding in regard with a biblical respect, is not exclusive to this fifth commandment. Look in Romans chapter 12 in verse 10. I think many of you know this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Chapter 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Chapter thirteen and verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Turn to first. Peter, Chapter Two and Verse Seventeen. I love these very simple commands Honor everyone, deal with one another in a way that shows respect. That shows gentleness, that reflects love, that reflects a Christ-like care. I want you to notice then that care honor is a theme, is not exclusive to this fifth commandment. It's a duty broadly across the pages of the Bible. And so, kids, this morning, as you hear, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, recognize that some of you, or you might be thinking, well, doesn't honor, isn't honor something we all need to do? And yes, it is. It's more than this fifth commandment. I want us to notice, secondly, that it's not simply to one parent. And then in the Hebrew, it's very distinct. It's not honor your father and mother. It's honor your father and, the little ending on the noun there is your father and your mother. It's both parents. It's both parents. And so dads, uh, let me just, a quick application to you is, as your children age and they approach puberty and they begin, you're not at home maybe, or, and, and your children, doesn't matter, son or daughter is giving mom or dad a, a bad time, Uh, let me say this. Let me be explicit. Be intolerant of that. Be intolerant. If your wife calls you and you're not at home and she says, you need to come home, this 13-year-old son of yours (laughs) is not respecting me, answer the bell. I'm not saying that that means at that moment, but it's saying the command is is broad. It's for both parents. Honor your father and your mother, and that's why you read even here. And in, in um, you'll read in Proverbs chapter one verses eight and nine. Notice how these are paired together. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. That's just Hebrew parallelism. Your father's instruction is paired with your mother's teaching. And here's why. Because as a composite, dad's input, dad's discipleship, mom's input, mom's discipleship taken together are like something that makes a whole spiritual protein. Verse nine, they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now I want us to see how this is annexed with a promise. That's the fourth point. We've seen the redemptive context, the foundation from creation, specifically Genesis 1. The character of this commandment is honor. This is prescribing the way we respond and regard those that have given birth to us, that have brought us into the world. And it wouldn't matter, by the way, if you're adopted, the truth remains that God has given you parents, even if through a legal mechanism. And adoption, biblically, is never a negative concept for we, who are his people, have been adopted by him. So we can't appeal to that. But here's the promise, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, some of you would understand that the very nature of a promise like this is perhaps like a marism is like a proverb in form. There are many who obeyed mom and dad, who honored mom and dad, some of whom died in childhood. There are those who have wicked, who have hated their parents who have dishonored mom and dad, who've lived many years. But the general principle here, and even as Paul quotes this in Ephesians 6, is that there is a general promise, a general principle of prosperity and length of life and quality of life with those who honor their father and their mother. I don't know how we can account for this except to say God has spoken it. And somehow then, he intends the very act and posture of honoring our parents as integral and connected with the way we live well and long. I don't understand that. It's just like I don't understand how of all the snowflakes that have ever fallen, we assert as a fact that no two are alike. But we accept that as a fact. And God has spoken this, and so I say, let's accept that. I want you to now turn with me to Ephesians 6. Because I want to point out something. If you've never thought of this, I think that this will encourage you. When Paul is going to introduce this fifth commandment in Ephesians 6. Did I say Ephesians or Genesis 6? Good, all right. That's short-term memory loss right there. Ephesians 6, where Paul is going to introduce this commandment, he gives this word that you really haven't seen elsewhere. It's implicit. But he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, so that obedience is part of, it's in the realm of honoring, okay? Not all honoring of mom and dad requires obedience. We don't require our adult children who've moved out of our home or no longer dependent on us, maybe even those that live in our home at certain ages, we don't require their obedience so that our word is their command. But I want you to notice that Paul cannot even give this entire command, verse 2, look at this, honor your father and your mother, without interrupting the command and inserting between the essence of the command, honor your father and your mother, and the promise annexed, it's like the person that cannot even get through what he wants to tell you, Without telling you why he's so excited about it, honor your father and your mother parentheses. This is the first commandment with a promise. And then he goes on to quote it, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land." He's actually quoting there from Deuteronomy 5:16, with the two components: that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, we've talked about this in our family series a year ago, but what type of obedience is God looking for from you? It's these three dimensions. Let's think through this briefly. Number one, prompt obedience, all right? Not delayed obedience. Delayed obedience, we would say, is not obedience. Number two is that your obedience would be cheerful. Yeah. Sometimes you're nodding and giving this nod of your head in your eyes and in your heart you're saying, I do not want to do this. Please don't make me do this. Cheerful obedience. Prompt, cheerful, and full. And so when mom and dad would say, after your room looks like Hurricane Ian, like traveled right through it, and they say, would you, would you clean, please clean your room, have that done before dinner. That's not acceptable. They walk in and there's not anything on the floor. But then they say, can we look under your bed and everything is stuffed so that your bed has risen in elevation by all the stuff you've pushed under it. That's really not what's intended. Prompt, cheerful, cheerful. And complete or full obedience. Just a word now about making honor easy for our children. There's two words, and you notice men are right in the middle of it. Dads, I hate to tell you this, but I think that implicit from Ephesians 6 in Colossians, the book of Colossians, in the parallel passage We can be a great stumbling block, a great impediment to our children's obedience to their honor. Again, that some of you, is it a Venn diagram where you have two circles and they intersect and that's the part that's solid, okay? So all obedience comes under the umbrella of honor, but all honor does not require obedience, right? We don't ask our adult children, um, we don't command them what to do. But the issue here, and for all of life, is that we make their honor easy. And so, just a word, dads, men, let's face this. It is our anger, it is our provocation of our children that will be an impediment to their obedience, to them honoring their mother and you. And so rather than provoking them to anger, by potentially doing for them what they have the capacity to do, or demanding of them what they do not yet have the capacity to do, frustrating on both accounts, or simply having them being on, them being on the receiving end of our anger, we make honor difficult. And so, how will we make their honor more easy? It's to be diligent to model the very things that we're asking of our children. If we want our children to be respectful, do they see us being respectful and gentle in our speech with others? if they want us to be, if we're asking our children to be orderly and taking care of their things, do we model that? If we ask our children to be on time and thoughtful of the time of others, are we prompt? Are we on time? Are we timely? Are we perpetually late and rushing around? If we would want our our children to be forgiving and bearing with their siblings, do we bear with them? Do we model the very behaviors and attitudes we expect from them? Just a word now, and we'll take this up more next week. That's our basic message. I wanted to open up this and do an exposition of Exodus 20 and verse 12. But just a word of caution, but particularly encouragement to those of you with difficult with absent, with aloof, with neglectful or evil parents. And again, I interacted with a few of you about this. How would you respond to this message? How do you respond when you read the single command that prescribes your response to your parents and the very thing that it calls you to give is the very thing that you think and you believe they do not deserve. What do you do? Sometimes when you pastor, and Pastor Jamie and I have talked about this, sometimes you speak to things that you've not yet experienced. You have to talk to others and you have to enter into their hurts and pains and understand the grief that they've experienced. And so that feels a bit like this here. And it's not that the Hat- four Hatfield kids had perfect parents. They weren't. They weren't. Uh, but I think it's harder. It's, it's a bit difficult here to relate to, to maybe some of you who have said my parents are evil. They were abusive. They were neglect they were absorbed in themselves they suffered they dealt with drug or alcohol issues or unfaithfulness who knows how do we respond so the first thing is that I want to say is the reminder that you are not responsible and you will not give account for your parents sins that's number one Number two is that if there's ever an embrace of the, a moment where we realize the sovereignty of God is so critical, it's this. And that is that there's not a mistake. God, as we say, is too wise to make a mistake. He's too loving to be cruel. And so as one of you wrote me this week, is that recognition that even the parents that God, she wrote me and said, the parents that God gave me, trusting that there's a design, there's a design, a perfect design by God to use very imperfect parents to help me become the Christian and the person I should be more and more holy and and, and sanctified. So that's the second word is the idea of a great grasp of the sovereignty of God. Another thing then I'm going to do this around two more words with s. So sin the reality that you are not you will not be accountable for your parents sin. Number 2 you must affirm the sovereignty of God with respect to your parents failings. Number 3 is right out of 2 Corinthians 12. You know in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul begged the Lord to take away something that plagued him. And he asked that God would take care of that three times. And he didn't. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I would combine the word sufficiency and sufferings together to say that perhaps the Lord, by the imperfect, by the inadequate, in terms of earthly parentage, points you to the perfect, and so that in your suffering you might find the sufficiency of God your Savior. And then the last, in terms of S, as we think of this, a word is that if it drives us to prayer and to supplication, that if we, just a word to you, and even one of the gals I interacted with this pointed this out, and we know this to be true. When we move towards someone, in the case of our parents, if we, like our enemy, or even a brother or sister in this church, someone you feel like oil and water, like, I just don't understand that person. If we come and we begin to pray for that person and say, God, soften my heart. Do them good. And you begin to pray for their good, for God's kindness and blessing in their lives, that God's purpose in their lives would be fulfilled, that his mercies would be new every morning for them. There's something about reigning, R-A-I-N-I-N-G, reigning prayer, on behalf of others, and storming the gates of heaven, that that rain seems to come and soften our own hearts for those whom we pray, even our enemies. And so when I think Jesus says, love your enemies, it's not surprising that he says, pray for those who persecute you so that love and prayer are never separated. The point of the law is not only to reveal God to us and the excellencies and the perfections of his character, not only to give us a standard of righteousness by which we shall live, but for us to cry out and say, how can we do this? I can't do it. And there was one who did and it's even as Pastor Mark Chansky preached a week ago from Psalm 68 and he talked about the hope that there is in Christ. Kids, I want to say this. Some of you are very aware of how you struggle to obey mom and dad. Some of you maybe are just getting a sense of that. Maybe some of you adults, you think, I've not really honored mom and dad. I don't call them like I should. I've, I, I'm not there I haven't expressed care for them and intersected their lives and reached out and invited them to our home. I haven't gone to their home. I haven't thought of their anniversaries and birthdays. And there are things I've really failed in honoring my older parents. We come and we hear John's words in 1 John where he says, If anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The law, Paul says in Galatians, is like a tutor that's designed to bring us to Christ and to make us feel our need, that we are lawbreakers and we desperately need a law keeper. And we have that. John says in 1 John 2, verse 1, Where he writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so that the Son of God came to save those who have disobeyed their parents. The Son of God came to save those of us who have not honored our parents as we ought. And that is great news. And you never remember, you never take law and separate it from the gospel. These two must be paired. You only understand one in the light of the other. The gospel saves us that we might be those who walk according to the commandments of God as slaves of righteousness. But the law reveals not only God to us, but he reveals not simply the sin from which we need to be saved, but for the Christian, then the law reveals for us with great joy that just the obedience that Jesus Christ gave on behalf of us, his people. It's a matter of honor. It's a call to honor, my friends. As we close, I want to remind you that we cannot do this by ourselves. You look at this commandment and it's so breadth. It's so, there's so much breadth to it, all that can be done to honor our parents, from communicating with them to supporting them to obeying them when we're our children in their home to remembering their joys, helping them in their weaknesses, speaking well of them even when they've died. Not highlighting their failures, but even forgiving their sins. There's so much. God, help us in this call to honor. Let's close for a moment in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We wait for you. On your word, we will rely. Who is sufficient for these things? We need your grace and your help. When you say honor your father and your mother, we pray that we have an understanding of what that looks like from the littlest child here to those of us who have older parents. We ask for your help and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.